welcome to The Thriller Zone. I'm your host, David Temple, and on today's show, I'm honored to introduce you to Luke McCallan. Luke has crafted a gripping historical thriller from a dark horizon. Now, a historical thriller is a first for this show, and I'm confident you'll be fascinated with his story. One small warning, the audio is a bit hinky because Luke is dialing in from France, where he says the Wi-Fi isn't quite top shelf. I think you'll enjoy hearing about his Gregor Reinhardt series that also includes The Man from Berlin, The Pale House, and The Divided City. Please welcome Luke McCallan as we get in the Thriller Zone. <laughs> I was doing my little test, but, <laughs> and I didn't know you were there yet. <laughs> yeah, pizza, pizza, pie, pick the pickle, pickle, peppers. Okay. So sorry. <laughs> it's quite all right. I'll do you off this time. We might have, it looks like we might have just a wee bit of a delay, um, but uh, we will be fine. If I don't step on top of you, that'll be great. So one thing to let you know about, um, <clears throat> I'm dialing in from France, a wonderful country. Um, wine shops are a national treasure, Wi-Fi less so. So if the Wi-Fi collapses, um, it'll be on my end that it's collapsed, and I'll try and move somewhere else in the house and reconnect. Is that going to really mess up your recording? Well, it will only mess it up um, if you freeze for that entire sentence like you just did. Okay. <laughs> your I face. Did really? But yeah, um, knowing that you're um, in a Wi-Fi stressed, stressed situation will will make it happen. Is that a electronic drum set behind you? Yep. It is. Keeps me sane. Oh, I am so jealous. I'm like one of these closet drummers since I was a kid. I've, I've never bought a set. I had one little snare growing up, and I thought that was the thing. One snare and one cymbal. But, yeah, electronic, that's cool because you can play and uh, not disturb your neighbors, correct? Well, yeah, it does sound like it's, even if you're playing with the headphones on and you're channeling John Bonham, you still do sound like it's a bunch of demented rats and walls <laughs> because you, you can't actually hear the sort of ticka, 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 you just can't hear so I do get terribly self-conscious about playing it, even around the family. So uh, my acoustic kits and pieces downstairs. I had it. We had a concert the other night. Cause I'm in a group, um, so I got it out and gave it a gave it a whack. Still sounds okay, but the electric kits, um, yeah, what you need. So um, you know, it's the best. Of, it's like a halfway house. It's not brilliant, but it's um, it's better than whacking ice cream boxes and whatever you have around. <laughs> which is how I started. That we all. Uh, you, you don't have the uh, the play like on uh, the pigskin. It, there's no it, it, there's a bounce because it's a rubber pad, but you don't really have that true connection of the play, do you? Not really. No, the snare. So you can see the white of the snare. It's a mesh. It's actually quite good, but the rest of it is hard plastic. So, I mean, it's harder than hitting a, a normal drum head. Um, but you know, it's not ideal. It's not yeah. ideal. But the, the snare is pretty good. Actually, quite you get a lot of you get a lot of fun out of the snare. But um, then you got all the sort of different um, you know um, sounds you can pull out of it. There's a module that goes with it. You can plug in your iPod, play along. There's a metronome. There's loads of things on it. You know, half of which I don't use. I, I love it. About it. Yeah. 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 Give me just one quick second. My dog is going to annoy the hell out of me if I don't let him in. Oh, good up, you. You got to keep it quiet. All right. Now just down on the floor, dude. Down on the floor. He uh, he likes to go knock on the door with his nose, and he's kind of relentless. He doesn't stop until I let him in, so I figure yeah. I get annoyed or I let him in. Sounds a bit like a cat. Well, Luke McCallan, thank you for joining us, and welcome to The Thriller Zone, our big start. Thank you very much, David. Great to be here. This is uh, a tremendous book. I love, love this cover. I'm a, such a cover fanatic and this tells an entire story just on the front page and uh, on the front cover and i i really really like it well i'm glad you do it's um it's funny how the um, the cover came together i mean i was initially a bit skeptical of it i, I thought it looked like it was you know down Abbey on fire the irish driver had just gone finally just gone through the roof and just you know decided to wreck his father most place but actually, there's enough elements on the cover that I, that suggests that something a bit more is going on. So, I really quite like the sort of the shadow in the middle, and then the smoke coming up from the back. I thought the the font was brilliant, the the red font yeah. against the grey sky. But can I give you a, a sneak a preview of something else? Right. So that was the American version. This is the British version. 
don't know whether that speaks to you. Um, I, I, but there are, there's lots of division between what make what works in the US market and what works in the UK side. Um, but this is a continuation of you know this sort of uh, silhouette cutout theme, which the, the British publishers have used on all the books. And there's always something going on on the inside, but it's it's really different, right? Two the same it, book, two completely different covers. Comple- and that's the original title, is it not? Where God that does not a, walk. Where God does not walk was the working title that made it all the way to the UK, but in the United States, um, and I'm not going to tell my publisher they don't know their business. They said that really won't work too well. So. I've had trouble with, not trouble is the wrong word. I've had, you know, issues with all the titles. So I had a couple in my back pocket and I said, here's one I made earlier. Here's another one I made earlier. So both actually are titles or or lines from poems about the First World War. So they both work really well. Well, it's brilliant. And um, it is the first, I can say that this is the first historical thriller that I've had on the show. So uh, I should have some kind of a fancy fanfare. Yeah, woohoo. And I'll... Maybe well, make some. Known, I would I would accuse in some classical music for you. And, you know. <laughs> it is a fascinating read, and this is this is book four, right? Because I did a little homework, and uh, I because I love that silhouette take on all the on the, and I'm going to show this on the screen here um, in post, but. I love that silhouette, see-through, uh, multidimensional, telling one story with with the uh, silhouette, but another with what's inside. And this, so, this is book four, correct? This is the fourth book I've written. Yeah, and so a reader can, if a reader wants to, a reader can dive in with this one because <clears throat> you'll you'll you know you'll see you could start at the beginning if you like. But the first the first three I wrote uh, were actually. In the future, so those of you who know your Star Wars, when I've done a George Lucas on you, and I've you know I've started with Episode Four, and then I've leapt back to um, Attack of the Clones or something, no, whatever it was, that awful turkey that they came out with that with that um, that first Star Wars novel uh, film. So the first three novels were you met the main character, Gregor Reinhardt. He's already you know broken down, embittered, shambles of a man. Um, you know, time has done that to him and various other things as well. And this time around, taking him way back to when he was, you know, uh, late teen, 19 years old, um, had to completely reinvent him, completely new character. It was the hardest thing to do on the book, even harder than the, any research I did. was trying to put myself into the mind of a, a 19-year-old boy, right, um, on the um, in the trenches and faced with, you know, something that's far beyond his reckoning, something he never thought he would have to face up to. So that was really hard. But um, so, yeah, if an author, I'm, <clears throat> I always personally quite like to start at the beginning of an author's work, right? Sure. So even if an author jumps back and forth, a bit like some of the Lee Child novels, um, you never quite know where you are in the Jack Reacher pantheon in terms of time, although some of them are clearly indicated, right? But otherwise, I always like to start at the beginning and I like to watch how an author evolves over time. So I would always recommend, if anyone asks me, and people sometimes do, where should they start? Until you know, until the, the two sequels to From a Dark Horizon written, I'll always say start at the beginning where I started, and that's the man from Berlin, and get to know Reinhardt like I did, um, and watch him grow, and then you'll have fun going all the way back in time and watching him become sure. someone completely different. <clears throat> I love that, and that was actually my next question was uh, how that uh, fitted in the sequence, and could I pick it up as a standalone? So you answered that, but I'd love to talk about the creation of this Gregor Reinhardt because he was a a multi-dimensional character that um, suffered uh, the the horrors of war, and also the there was this inner dialogue, almost a psychosis that I really kind of dug because I I like the dark underbelly of so much. So let's talk about the creation of him. So he comes. I mean, I guess you must hear this from a lot of authors, right? But it's true. Right, he comes out of the subconscious somewhere, right? So I can sure. remember it was sometime in the year two thousand. I, I woke up and he was, he was fully formed as a, there was an image of him and there was a sense of him. And essentially, he walked into a dream and he said, "My name is Gregor Reinhardt and I am on the edge of despair of what my life has become." And he was, you know, this sort of, you know, very strong image of this sort of silhouette shape, you know, a sort of Humphrey Bogart private eye, rain jacket turned up and a fedora on his head, and there was a cigarette smoking somewhere. And you, know, you wake up and it was vivid, 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 and you scramble around for something to write down that first line, my name is Gregor Reinhardt and I'm on the edge of despair of what my life has become. And I had to figure out what it was. And um, you know, um, no one was more surprised than me to find myself channeling a middle-aged German from the 1940s because I always thought I would write fantasy and science fiction. So the first thing I'm doing is what is happening? 
But essentially, the, the short the short version, so the straight arrow through the story, is that I was working as a, as a uh, political advisor for the UN peacekeeping mission in Bosnia Herzegovina at the time. And essentially, I was I, I began to use him to channel a lot of what I was seeing and doing and feeling, or you know, not doing, not saying. Because sometimes you you know you can't always do and say what it is you want to say and do. I began to realize that he was some kind of you know, channel right into my subconscious to say there is a way to do this and it's on the pages of a book. Um, give it a go. Uh, and for the longest time, you know, I struggled and sh shambled around and with this character. And I, 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 you know, there was this long period of could I, not not could I do it. I knew I had, pretty sure I had the chops to do, to write. But I, should I? What, what does it say about me that I'm writing a book? In that period, with you know a German, even though even though he's not a Nazi, it's still like what are people going to think about me? So I put it down, looked at it, walked away. Years went by, years went by. And finally, um, I realised that the the story, his story, was my story, and the story I wanted to see was in many ways what I like to say about the man from Berlin was a love song for Bosnia, which was a country and the people that I love, came to love very very deeply. Um, and I um, initially had Berlin as the setting. For this novel, right? I mean, and I was terrified of going to Berlin, and Berlin belonged to Philip Kerr and Bernie Gunter, and his fans are pretty jealous of the Berlin sidewalks. They kick out, you know, uppity newcomers like me. Um, you get booted off into the cells. So, um, but then I realised, you know, aha, I've got something to say. I've got something to say about that time, and I have something to say about that place, which is Bosnia and Sarajevo. And then, when I realised that, the book just took off and wrote itself in many ways. It was just leapt off the page of me and um so yeah there's a lot of me a lot of me in that first novel uh, and because i never knew whether i would write another one and you know that i was writing a novel um david right i just did what felt right um and then no one was more surprised than me that i had a novel and then no one was more surprised than me that i had a novel that someone wanted to publish and there was been ever since been more surprised that people actually read it buy it and read it come back for more. So um, that's kind of like, you know, the short version of what where Gregor Reinhardt came from. Well, and here's a beautiful thing that I like what you just said, and it reminded me, had uh, Wanda Morris on the show last week, and she was talking about, uh, I was asking her kind of her secret, her theory, her philosophy. And she said, uh, ignore the rules and write the story that appeals to you and that resounds with you. And then you feel has come to you in some form that you can't help but tell it, and a an audience will find it. And I thought of this when you were saying that, and, and it's so true. That's point A. Point B is there, and I understand how you feel. A lot of authors feel this way when they think, "Oh, what what have I got to say that fill in the blank famous author hasn't already mastered if, to the tune of ten or fifteen or twenty novels?" And that is this. There's you know, there's nothing new, nothing original. It's your voice. It's going to be your particular slant on things. And so I applaud you for hanging in there. Cheers. Yeah, and it was, it was not easy. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the guy I read when I, when I first began thinking seriously about, you know, writing historical crime fiction and, you know, trying to basically, I talked to my father and other, my father in particular, my other, some other friends, people who've read this stuff and my father devours, you know, crime fiction. So where do I start? What are the what are the origin pieces on in this world? So he pointed out a few a few books. I went a bit further, and then I stumbled across, as you do, pure happenstance, um, Philip Kerr's Berlin Noir trilogy, which I don't know whether you've read, but if you haven't, I highly recommend. It. I mean, Philip Kerr reinvented essentially historical crime fiction from the ground up with that, in my opinion. And when I read it, it kind of froze me into mobility. I thought no one's ever going to do that period and those issues better than that. So. And I had in mind as well this, sort of this Tolkien-esque moment, right? Because I've always loved science fiction and fantasy. Tolkien is, you know, he's, he's, the, he's the mountain on the landscape that everyone tries to either climb or get around. And there's so much derivative stuff, right, in fantasy, so much derivative stuff around Lord of the Rings that you think, oh, God, something different, really, would you? Um, and then lately other people have, right? I mean, you know, George Martin's one, you know, his, his writing cuts straight through and his humour, it's just so fresh to see in, in that genre. Robert Jordan, even though I wanted to whack Robert Jordan over there with the collected hardbound editions of his books, and just like, get on with it. You know, Robert Jordan reinvented. And so there was way, there are people who could do it. I didn't think that I could, but um, I just realized that actually, if I if I took you to the Balkans, I, you know, I 
close your, I can even say, close your eyes, give me your hand, trust me. I want to walk you through this wild landscape and you're going to enjoy the ride with me. So it was really moving at the Balkans that sort of shifted. That was that, you know, block unblocking in my mind that I, yeah, I could do this. I got things to say that no one else is saying. And that was, that was the moment, the road to Damascus moment. I find it so interesting that you, uh, that you have such an, uh, a passion for science fiction, because this is, in my opinion, about as far from that as possible. You know, generally a, a writer will have a, a particular bent toward this, and then maybe they'll veer off on this. But to me, science fiction and historical fiction, crime thriller, are opposite ends of the spectrum. So that that's a conundrum for me. I like that. They could, yeah, if, you, if you say it like that, yes, you're not wrong. I mean, um, again, go back to the point, right? No one was more surprised than me that, that Gregor Reinhardt was the guy I was going to you know, get my first, get my name up in lights on the cover of a book. But if you think about it as well, right? So science, historical fiction, it wants to say something about place and time. And it wants to sort of teach you, you know, learn, teach you a lesson about what happened, what could have happened. And in a way, science fiction is the opposite end of it. Like you're right, right? The other end is like what could happen, right? What could happen if, you know, and the best science fiction is one that takes an issue and spins it, um, you know, into something believable. You know, this one of the science fiction writers I like the most, William Gibson. I mean, I use the phrase five minutes into the future science fiction, right? The world is entirely recognizable. But he takes his lives, he just like flips them 90 degrees or whatever and just says, This is what could happen. And, um, you know, it's that it's in a way it's world built, it's, it's world building, right? It's no one's going to say that science fiction writers got it wrong, although sure. the old ones we now know that, you know, time their, their time has come and passed sometimes. What was their future is now our past. But with um, with historical fiction, you bet you got to get it right. At least you got to like get enough of it right that you can say, "I've done my research. I know what I'm doing. This time and place was real. Now let's get on with the story and you know enjoy the ride." And and that begs this: I you mentioned something in the back of the book in your historical notes, the Dark Horizon, and I love this: is one man's experience of World War One. But further, you said it could be seen as a coming of age novel, which I felt. But it is not a novel about war. Tell my audience the significance of that statement. So I didn't want to write a novel that was only about the First World War. And there are plenty of them out there. Actually, less than you think, far more about the Second World War. But it was, I didn't want to get sucked into the morass of what people usually associate with World War I, right? Which is you know, the trenches, the blood, the mud, the slaughter, the futility. I think greater pens and mine have been over that ground and, and you know, done it. Um, you know, much greater justice and service than I ever could. So the war is essentially the background to the coming of age, and the coming of age is essentially the breaking of a young man, right? So the character comes out of this broken, um, you know, by by his experiences, not just the war. The war doesn't break him much as the, you know, without giving too much away, the war doesn't break him as much as the, the betrayal of you know, why he's fighting and who he's fighting for. Uh, you know, when the blinkers come off as he stumbles across this conspiracy. So the, um, and one man's experience of war is not another man's experience of war. I think I've, you know, I've never been a soldier. I've been a, a member of a peacekeeping mission and worked with many soldiers. And there are as many um, interpretations of, of war, of a soldier's experience of war, as there are soldiers that go to war. You know, some talk, some don't. You know, some are broken, some aren't. Some thrive, some, you know, some just want to get over it. Some can put it behind them, some can't. Um, so it's, you know, it's also a very human condition as well. That it's, um, so it was really, the war was also the background for something else I wanted to talk about, which is, you know, even though I, you know, I love science fiction and fantasy, but the other thing I read, I've always read is history and, and political science. And these moments, these crux moments in human history, fascinating, many revolutions, the French Revolution, and then there's, you know, the, the revolutions in, in, in France again in the 1830s, 1840s, and there's, Russian revolutions, that these pivotal moments, right, when human history is turning um, and no one knows what's going to come out the other end. And sometimes we look back on it and we think everyone around knew what was happening. But when you live through a revolution, you don't really know what's going on unless you're directing it. You're more concerned about where you, your breakfast is going to come from and will your kid come home to save from school. So the revolution, sort of this crux moment in the background as well. So from a dark horizon, it's really about an old world is dying. It's dying in blood and mud. But no one knows what's going to come, what's new, what's going to be birthed new. Some people actively want something different. Some people actively want what, what came before. 
some people want the same that old world back, but you know that old world you know essentially got them, us into this. Um, and are they, they really the people that you want to be coming out um, ruling the peace, if you like? So those were some of the things I was thinking about when it was when I say it's not a novel about war as much as it's about this coming of age, this breaking of man, this this sort of um, moment moment in an age that doesn't come along too often. I think you and I, when I mean, we lived through one, you and I, right, the Cold War, the end of the Cold War. No one knew, no one could see that you know we would end up you know thirty odd years later in this world. But you know the Cold War, we could feel you could feel tectonic movements all around us, right? Something was happening. And, you know, um, but everyone, we all lived it differently. And so I think that was the kind of thing that I was trying to get to as well with that, with that um, with a bit of writing in the back of the book and then hopefully in the whole experience of the novel as well. Well, mission accomplished. Now, here's an interesting thought, and I, I've always kind of prided myself on a pretty stout vocabulary, uh, but an interesting observation, perhaps in my ignorance. On several occasions, I found myself reaching for the dictionary for words because I had no knowledge of some of these. And that rarely happens. Uh, that's admitting my ignorance. But have you always had such a robust vocabulary? I know it's kind of a, a tangent question, but it, it one that made notes about I, it a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I, I could be wrong, but in the sense of you know what, what you were reading when you were possibly stumbling across words you weren't familiar with, I think I was trying to either describe emotion or I was trying to describe landscape. Um, which are two, you know, two parts of writing just that are really, really. I, I like to spend time getting into grips with those. Um, you know, the inner mon, the inner monologue. Even though I've really sort of shaved back on the sort of the excess. If you read the first novel, like again, because I never knew, didn't know what I was doing half the time. I never knew whether I would write another one. I tend to go a bit overboard on the internal monologue because you know it's one time only, guys. Roll up, roll up. I've shaved that back a lot, but landscape is something that really um, speaks to me. And, you know, I live in, in the foothills of the mountains here in this part of France, and it's like, it's something new every day. And I always take a moment to look at the mountains and think about what am I seeing? How can I describe it differently? Um, you know, it, there was a, a famous poem from a, a book, Permanence at Rest and Permanence in Motion. It's the, it's the stone, stone and sea. Um, and I always think, I always think about that. So how can you push the envelope and describe these things differently? And then, the first couple of novels set in the Bosnian forests, you know, this stuff really speaks to you. This is primeval forest. This is, you know, it's dark under those trees and dark things happen. Um, and then, you know, the, from, from the forests of Bosnia, I take you to the ruins of the third novel. And then for the fourth one, it's the wasteland, it's no man's land, but there's got to be more happening in there than, than just, you know, an, an empty space where, you know, periodically men run across and get shot. So I think it's um, it's this desire to sort of you know try and find a different way of maybe describing the same thing, where, which pushes me. I hope I don't overdo it. I don't mean to. I'm glad you found that. And it's a great question. I've never actually thought about it. No, it wasn't overdone. And any time, you know, when I was growing up, my mom was one of these uh, people that read every single book in the library from a young child, and. We used to have this ginormous dictionary. I want to, I think it was uh, the Oxford Dictionary. It was just, you know, it's the size of a Volkswagen. And as kids, you know, if we ever said anything like, well, I don't, what's that word? Or how do you spell it? Go get the dictionary. And we had to go get the dictionary, look the word up. Well, how do I know it if I can't? You'll figure it out. And then stand before the family and say it phonetically and spell it and then you know, give the definition. And I, you know, at the time it was a pain in the ass, but I realize now all these years later that it, it was such a phenomenal education because that's where that vocabulary yeah. mind came from. My dad, yeah, my dad did something very similar with us. You know, he would always say, get the dictionary and look it up. And I would always say to my kids, they come home from school, like, how was your day? And I said, you can say anything, but you can't say good, nice, or fine. <laughs> you know, give, give me something else. Give me three adjectives that are not good, nice, or fine. So I'm so I passing the baton on a bit, I suppose. I like it. I got a two-part question for you. One is, uh, when did you first find your interest and or fascination with historical thrillers? When did that begin? And have you ever wanted to write something like very modern day and very, for lack of a better term, like mainstream commercial crime thriller? So I'll take your second, the second part first. Yeah, yeah, the answer is yes, I do want to write something uh, different. Um, I mean, Gregor's got a lot of mileage left in him. Um, we'll come back to it in a moment. 
but I would love to write um, something which is just stating in my mind, I call them, for want of a better word, humanitarian thrillers. And I want to set them in my my world, my the world of you know the United Nations, you know, non-governmental organizations, humanitarian relief efforts around the world. You know, I want to put an interesting character right in the center of all that and have him, you know, do things. I mean, think about the stuff that we as humanitarian workers, either the places that we work, like Afghanistan or Pakistan or Haiti after the earthquake. Think of the issues that we face, you know, with the reconstruction of a of a country, facing down war criminals, you know, corruption. Um, you know, abuse of um, people that we're supposed to protect. Um, think of the cast of characters. I mean, we've got people from all walks of life, all over the world, working in the aid world, and we meet all kinds of people. So I, I would love to write, you know, novels like that. I just got to get them past essentially the, um, should we say, the uh, the ethics committee at my work because I think the hair will catch fire, uh, and it has actually. Um, I've seen them running down the hallway with their hair on fire as I tried to sort of describe, you know, what, uh, me an insider writing these kinds of novels. That's um, a big, it's a big fat no-no for the time being. But I'm, you know, I'm, you know, my charm and good looks will eventually wear them down. I'm pretty sure. Um, but on historical fiction, um, you know, to be, I'll be very, I mean, very honestly, David. Before I went abroad, I didn't really have, you know, um, much of a, much of a interest is too strong a word, but I didn't really know that there was a genre that existed so much. And it's funny because um, my mum and my dad both devour historical fiction. My mum very much um, um, sort of medieval um, stuff. I don't know whether you know the Brother Cadfile um, mysteries. It's a medieval monk uh, in a monastery in, in, in England, and he solves mysteries and it's all based you know around you know very erudite stuff like you know his command of latin or his command of herbs and that kind of thing very good tv series by the way highly highly recommended uh, made by the bbc about uh, 10 15 years ago and my dad loves historical fiction actually as i answer this question i realized the answer to your question was i've always liked it because i now realizing my dad and i shared a love of the sharp thrillers i don't know if you know the the um Adventures of Richard Sharp, who was a, a rifleman in Wellington's army fighting Napoleon um, in Spain in the 19th century. Fantastic um, adventures as a kid. I loved them. And it was made into, in my opinion, a not brilliant TV series with Sean Bean, my um, lead editor. And then, of course, the, um, the for me the and for my dad, the, um, the sort of the, um, the Tolkien, if you like, of the historical fiction is Practical Brian's series about um, the um, sailing ships. Captain Aubrey and um, Stephen Maturin, his surgeon, who's actually a spy. They are phenomenal, phenomenal books and literature. I, I, I would not, I would absolutely say those are pieces of literature. Um, and if you or your readers haven't discovered them, um, then I, you know, there is miles and miles, or sea miles and sea miles of reading in the Patrick O'Brien series. You may know that it was one of them, the first one of them was made to a film with Russell Crowe uh, called Master and Commander. Oh, yeah. About, uh, well, 20-odd years ago now. Um, but a very good film. It stitches together bits of three or four of the Patrick O'Brien novels. So um, so I think the um, you know the interest in historic history, I mean, I loved history, my favourite subject at school. Then um, I did, you know, I began to dip my toe into the reading, following my mum and dad's footsteps a bit. And then, um, but historical crime fiction, so I was, that's how I heard your novel, or your question, only came much later, but, you know, Historical fiction was a way to sort of, if you like, put meat on the historical bones that you were learning in, in, in school, like, you know, the Russian Revolution. Yeah, but what was it like? Well, go read a book about it. Or, you know, or sailing ships, you know, when, you know, when the Royal Navy ruled the world, what was it like? Well, go read Patrick O'Brien or well, that kind of thing. Or, you know, whether, what was the French Revolution really like? Well, read Hilary Mantel's novel about the French Revolution. That was what my, my mother would do, chuck a book at me when I was asking a question like this. So yeah, always. I mean, I mean, like most authors, I'm sure, like you, David. I mean, we've got piles of books that we we stare at longingly um, and never get around to never get around to reading or read it much later than we think. But they're always there, buzzing around. I think it's no surprise that you have had such a fascination with historical fiction, given the love that your parents had, and I. I find that to be true. Uh, you know, I would start reading the books that my mother would read. She would hand them off to me, and then I'd read them, and then I'm like, oh, I like this. And it it wasn't until she got into, uh, oh, what is it? Oh, Amish romance. When she hit the Amish romance, I'm like, I'm out. Sorry. That's a, that's a genre. 
that's an actual genre. Amish romance. Yeah. Amish romance. And I can remember the first the first adult book I ever read. I can remember it. It was we 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 were um we were living in Zimbabwe uh, <clears throat> and it was 1983 and there was an author uh, he just recently passed away a guy called Wilbur Smith um, who wrote basically novels about Africa but he um he wrote one novel called The Leopard Hunts in Darkness and it was set in Zimbabwe at the time we were living there and um i remember like devouring it secretly secretly giggling with glee like you know i know what he's talking about i know i've been here i know this i i can you know i i smelt that i've touched that i've been there and whatever and i i, I still have that that novel the note seriously dog eared but every it's one of those books i think we all have them every now and then you just circle back for another read and um you know, huge huge influence on me just because it was just different right it was different and isn't it fascinating those books that had such an impact early on and become a it became a seminal moment where you just held on to that feeling and and on top of that the fact that you have lived in so many of the places that you reference um brings an authenticity to it that's so amazing that you can't you know you often hear you have to go to the place to really experience it well you can do google flyovers or you know all the research you want but there isn't quite something as visceral and uh, tangible as you know the smells of the city etc i agree yeah. and that was one of the things that the um you know the writing the fourth novel you know from a dark horizon there was a lot of research and enjoyable research uh, done about it. But again, that's also one of the sort of one of the reasons why I didn't want to sort of write a book about the war, right? Because it's been done, you know, in great depth, um, you know, and, and um, there's a wealth of information out there. But the, the one bit of research that really sank into the book and sank into the way I wanted to write it was I've been to the Western Front a couple of times, but I, I made a point to go there for the centenary in 2018, so November 11th, 2018. I knew I, had, I knew just knew I had to be there, <clears throat> and so I actually drove up on my own. I got to the um, you know the Western Front, the Somme, the Somme battlefield um, quite early, and just drove around. And then I was I just found myself just before 11 a.m. on November 11th at the memorial to the Welsh division, which is um is this really um, very moving um, uh, sculpture in iron of a red dragon. Red dragons are similar to Wales. My mum is Welsh, half my family is Welsh. And it's on a plinth of Welsh, Welsh granite, and it's looking across a field where the Welsh division attacked um, and were, you know, basically cut to pieces um, on the Battle of the Somme. So I was, I just gravitated there, and um, it was misty and it was raining, drizzling rather, and then all of a sudden, out of the mists, near and far, right, the bells of all these villages began ringing at eleven o'clock, and you know, some off, some were in tune. There was one guy that was clearly a an expert bell ringer because he was playing some kind of tune on those bells and he was, you know, um, really knocking out that um, that rhythm. And then a couple of people just were there too. They just gravitated. We were all very quiet. We all sort of stood to one side. And then when, once 11 a.m. was done and the bells were finished, we just came together and they, it turned out that one of the guy, the one of the men who was there had been the sculptor of the granite blocks that he put up the monument, you know, 20, 30 years ago and come back for it. But then, you know, when they had all gone and I was on my own again, I just walked over the field and, you know, you just feel your boots sinking into the mud and you kneel down and pick it up, smell it, run your fingers through the grass, you go into the tree, the forest has grown back, but there's, you know, war detritus everywhere. There's cast, there's rusted shell casings, there's, you know, barbed wire on the ground. You don't have to go very far. You just, all you have to do is stand there and soak it in. And that was, you know, one of the best bits of research I did without really ever knowing that I was doing it. And that was, um, it was very moving. And the, uh, the afterword from a dark horizon, I tried to sort of give the reader a little sense of how, I, how that felt, but that was, um, you talk about Google flyovers. I've done those too. You know, when I was, um, when I was doing the third novel, the ashes of Berlin, and then it visited the city and they're really useful. I mean, I don't know, hats off to our four, our writer, writer forebearers template, David, who, managed to write books without the internet. I don't know how they did it. Oh, absolutely. And and just as you were telling the story there just now, I, I was walking alongside you. And, you know, that's the the uh, results of a good storyteller. I mean, I was smelling it and feeling it and seeing it. Um, you know, another thing that I really enjoyed 
and I hope this is a compliment, uh, enjoyed about your book is the vast amount of dialogue. Um, you know, often I have found, and I, I don't do a lot of historical fiction reading, but what I have, you know, it's steeped in deep atmospheric descriptions and backstory, which is great. But this was so rich and full of dialogue. I mean, it would just be pages and pages of this dialogue. And I love that because I, I didn't need to have a lot of the history of the room they were in. You gave me just enough that I, I knew where I was. But it was the double entendres and the secretive underlying meanings. And then uh, the characters would talk about one another in different ways. I just, I thoroughly enjoyed that. Well, thank you. I think maybe that comes from, you know, maybe trying to sort of, um, you know, um, what's the expression? I may get it wrong. Show, don't tell or tell, don't show. Uh, one of the two. With the first, so with the first novel, Man from Berlin, you know, I was, you know, I was tripping over myself trying to show you, you know, what I knew about the was, it was It was maybe flipped around there. It was a lot of exposition, a lot of, you know, hopefully, you know, well-written and, 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 and um, you know, well-flowing exposition, but I wanted you to, you know, see Sarajevo. Um, but I've learned as my writing craft has grown, should we say, that the real, I think maybe the real richness is much more in, you know, the, it's much its much more in the dialogue. It's in the characters, right? Um, and it's how they express themselves. And I, I always try as well to give each character a very distinct voice, um, whether it's uncouthness, whether it's humour, whether it's taciturnness, whether it's, you know, and I try to make sure that, you know, that comes through clearly on the page. And... Um, but it is funny. You mentioned that you've, you know, you enjoyed all that. I, um, I sometimes um, find myself reading aloud back my stuff, and I kind of cringe. And I thought, oh god, that doesn't—that's <laughs> a bit too much. Um, it's funny the way the word sounds perfectly okay in your mind, um, but then if you speak it out, it doesn't always happen. But sometimes I go back and look at it, and I think, hmm, next time, next time, make it even shorter, make it even punchier, strip it back again. And there's a funny anecdote um, I can tell about um, some friends of ours in Cornwall, in England. And they used to be, um, as, our third, as our third guest, they, are, they used to be, um, they used to live not far away from uh, John McCary, uh, you know, the, uh, the great um, thriller writer who passed away very recently. And um, it was well known in, in sort of the villages around that he, you know, where he had his house, that um, you would often see a crazy old, crazy man with a shock of white hair blowing in the wind walking up and down the cliffs, yelling or speaking to himself. And the tourists were told, don't bother him. It's John le Carré, and he's testing out his dialogue. Um, he knows exactly what he's doing. And no, he's not about to jump. And no, he's not going to hurt you. Um, just stay just stay, stay well clear of him. So sometimes I do take that to mind. And I do actually sort of stop and read out my dialogue aloud. I've heard this from other people, that it's a good idea to go back and see if the dialogue and the conversations work by reading aloud. How, uh, however... I do. I do agree with you totally. When you're writing it, all that dialogue and all the words make so much sense in the silence of your head. Um, but I think about guys like, and I, I often find myself referring to him uh, quite often as Elmore Leonard, the way that he would strip so much out of both dialogue and description. You know, we we tend to speak in a shorthand, generally speaking. We don't do you suppose you would like to follow me? Do you fancy following me to a place for dinner? You want to go eat? You know. Yeah. And then the other the other thing is is uh, I've done some uh, number of audiobooks in the past, and I like it when an author will allow the narrator to have a little bit of play in it. In that, when you are written, when you write for the eye, it sometimes. Uh, translates differently for the ear and uh and if you're good at making that adjustment on the fly like i'm pretty good at then i think it works for everyone um so you you've done audiobooks david I, my, my hat's off to you because um i've you know I've, I've i can't say i've listened to many um but when i do i'm usually you know i kind of in awe at the the way a narrator takes, you know, takes the book and gives different voice to different characters. And you used to think I would be lost listening to a book because I would always like to read the, you know, the descriptive text and stuff. I would like to sort of, you know, wallow in that and really enjoy it. But but um, listening to a, a fine narrator at his craft is is quite something. So I doff my hat to you. Well, thank you. There are a lot of really good ones out there. 
And uh, I've, some that I've done, I will do uh, a variation on a voice like, uh, you know, it gets tricky when you're trying to do a woman and you don't bring a woman into the recording session, but it's simple by just lifting your voice and changing, yeah. you know, the way you pitch it. Where it, the real challenge comes, and I could see that on this particular book, is when you have to bring in both uh, textures of characters steeped upon accents, and then if you do... Uh, a different uh, accent with a different language, then it gets really challenging. But all in all, it's it is a fun yeah, little and it's um I often I always write I don't write the novels with um, a German sort of voice in mind. If you see what I mean, I don't I don't pretend to know enough about Germany and Germans, and I speak atrocious German. Um, so I, I kind of write them as you know I feel them, and I I also made a distinct effort you know all the way through the novels to strip out. Um, you know what a lot of historical fiction writers do in this genre, which is stuff all these German words into the into the novel. It's like Achtung and Schnell and Haus. Just like no, it's like be careful, get out. Um, you know, just like say it like they would say it. Otherwise, I try. I encourage everyone to 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 read it with their own voice in mind. You know, don't get sucked into giving it accents. And I've, it's my interest. The the, the the British narrator or the narrator of the first three novels. Um, did exactly that. Um, he didn't try to give, you know, except in a few rare occasions, he didn't give a German accent. He just gave his accent. But he did what you just did, which is modulate his voice differently for each one, which I think works better. I, I, otherwise, I think you do, it just becomes, you know, jarring and it's not quite. And I would lose some of that authenticity. I and mean, again, if you're looking for a universal experience in a way, um, which is what you're sometimes trying for, all the while, you know, trying to fix the character in place and time and make that place and time unique. That's that's a very good point. And I also think, Luke, that, it, you know, it, you have to allow, you have to give your listener slash reader credit, especially if you're setting up, Luke said, la, la, la. And then, what do you mean, David said? I mean, give the reader enough credit that you if you're setting them up with who who's doing the speaking, then you don't really have to color the voices so dramatically, especially if it's in a scene that there's only two people. Uh, you don't have to belabor the point with he said, she said. Um, well, this leads me to another point. So while you're researching to find an audiobook narrator for your next book, um, I wonder about, do you see any of these books, and this one in particular, of course, as a screenplay? So did you, while you were writing it, and because I'm a filmmaker, also, did you find yourself seeing it as a movie? And did you find yourself thinking, oh, I wonder if I could write the screenplay? Great question. And less a movie, more a really good um, miniseries. Yeah. Um, I think it would do. I think a miniseries would make it live much, uh, much better and do more justice to some of the characters. But um, funny, I um, so I I have a very very vivid visual imagination. I, I, I see, you know, and again, this goes back to something I mentioned earlier. I, I see places, landscapes, you know, forests, mountains. This sort of stuff is just imprinted on me. And um, so, I, if if you like, I have a, a sort of sweep of of place, time, and landscape in which I, I write. And I didn't actually write the first one, you know, with that in mind. But when people read it, they none of them jumped up and said, this would make a really great film. So I began thinking about it a lot more. Um, it would be, and, but only from a purely, um, you know, um, sense of, you know, personal self-aggrandizement, you know, sort of say, you know, burnish my laurels even more. Like, look, look, I've got a film or whatever. But, if it gets made, it gets made. It'd be wonderful. I mean, I think it would make a great um, miniseries, like I said. And then the um, the uh, the thing that you you mentioned, which I find, um, I often ask myself this uh, as I um, I have a really great admiration for the screenwriter uh, or the screenplay. Um, and you mentioned Elmore Leonard earlier, and he's a, a favorite writer of mine. But the only time his writing makes sense is when people speak. Because the rest, because the rest of the time, I have no idea what the hell's going on in his novels. I mean, I've got you know, I've got this one, you know, this storm, which I, I've tried to get into, and I love El, I love um, James Elroy. So you mentioned Elmore then. Sorry, I meant James Elroy. Um, L.A. Confidential. That oh, book yeah. is practically impenetrable. I mean, I had a really hard time with it, but I read it after I'd seen the film, 
And I, when I finished it, I just sat back in awe at the screenwriters who tugged that red thread out of that book and, uh, and made it into the film that it was. I think the film and the book both stand in different ways as masterpieces of their craft. There's another one in, uh, in, in France, uh, a novel called um, Au Revoir Là-Haut. I think in, in um, English it's translated as The Great Swindle. And it's about two French soldiers, veterans of the First World War, one of whom has, a, has had his um, jaw blown off. So he's what the French call a, a, a broken face, literally. And it's how they survive in the after-war period. It's a very big, thick, dense novel. Uh, and it's been made successively into a, a film and a graphic novel, which the French do really well. And the graphic novel in, is, in a way, you know, because they have storyboard and all that, it's kind of like a screenwriter's um, uh, um, attempt or piece of work. And again, the screenwriter, the, 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 the artist for that graphic novel, just tugged out of that big, thick doorstep of the book, this beautiful graphic novel. And, um, you know, it's sometimes in the space of, you know, one, one, one box of, of imagery, you would encapsulate an entire chapter of the book and again you kind of think sit back and think wow so i think um i think it would be um i don't have any qualms about people taking my work and, and adapting it um like i don't have any qualms about people reading my work and not liking it right once you've read the book and, and once i've written the book and it's published it's your book you can like it or not you can engage with me or not you know sure. you can i don't mind um and i think but i think as i would probably put up stop sign on my own capacity on my own limits on the screenwriters on the screenplay and i would probably step back and say those who can you you do it have fun have at it and i would i would love to see it come to the screen i mean i'm not lying i would love to see it come to the screen sure um i once put up a question on the website who would play gregor reinhardt i got some really interesting answers back actually all right we'll save that because i'm gonna pull this back around in the story so just leave that alone right now um but, but back to this point about a screenplay, and fortunately, I was able to take my very first self-published novel and turn it into a screenplay and then turn it into a movie myself. But what I would tell you and encourage you is that uh, they are two, and I'm, I'm overstating the obvious, they are two entirely different worlds. They're, you know, the book itself is just rich with story and background and setting, et cetera, et cetera. But the people who really get the screenplay are able to, as you said, and I love this, the, the red thread throughout the whole story, is to be able to uh, plant the essence of the dialogue. I mean, because you're taking, in your case, 500 pages down to about 120, maybe 130 in screenplay. And that is a challenge in and of itself. But the guys who can really do it are, are as you said about LA Confidential, are masters. But I always find it interesting. A lot of uh, authors say, oh, I'd love to see this turned into a series. And and I realize that it's two different writing forms. But I'm surprised at the amount of people, or I guess I'm surprised, I'm kind of surprised that more authors don't find that interesting to be able to try their hand at it. Because I think if you ever try it once, your first one will be horrible. I think my first screenplay attempt was about 220 pages. <laughs> And I got it to 120, but um, I think you, uh, with your with your expertise and your knowledge, I think it would be interesting to for you to try your hand at it because I just you know fun little exercise if nothing else. Why not? Why not? I mean, challenge. I'd like to say challenge accepted. I mean, I'll give it a go. I'll give most things a go once within reason, of course. Um, but um, yeah, why not? Why yeah. not? Indeed. One of the things that uh, ha was crystal clear to me is how you've worked your experiences of your vast world travel into the places and characters of your story. And so before we start to wrap, I wanted to ask you about your work with the United Nations, which is on your jacket. Can you share that experience and how you've used that experience to weave it into your ability to tell stories of this depth? So my current job is with the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. Um, I guess you could say I'm a reporting officer. So I, I run a, um, I run the unit that produces the big reports for, for UNHR. And by big, I mean, you know, pretty chunky reports. So we are, you know, we're 17 and a half thousand staff members in about you know, 130 countries around the world. We have an annual budget of about $9 billion and we get about half that in funding. So we've, our reports, I have to sort of do justice to our work and, and also acknowledge the generosity of our donors and, and also the countries that host host refugees so there's um 
that's sort of uh, running that unit and and um, and um, that um, we have an accompanying website that offers much greater detail um, is a um, you know really full time full time job much more so than I than it has been in the past. So my writing is I want to say quote unquote suffering a bit. I mean, cry me a river, right? I have a full time job that I love, um, and it just keeps me away from the writing a little bit too much. But yeah, there we go. But the real, the real. Um, so I grew up in this world. Right? My my mum and dad were both aid workers. Um, my dad was actually in the same poor position that I'm in now. He retired about um, 15 years ago, um, and I joined about six. So there was um, there was no no question of nepotism, no jobs for the boys. Um, you know, I joined on merit. You better believe it. And then uh, my mum was a specialist working with child soldiers. So she would um, she would you know work essentially as a psychologist. To reintegrate child soldiers back into back into society after wars. We grew. I grew up in Africa, then we grew up in you know in places like Turkey. My dad worked you know, other places where he couldn't take us, and I was kind of a bit like um, a bit like you know frog in the water. As the water boils up around you, I didn't really know anything else to do. I didn't know anything else that I wanted to do. The only other, the only other lodestar or pole star that came stayed with me this whole time was writing. So you know, between writing and trying to do, you know, wanting to do aid work, those were those were the two things that I've carried with me all the way. And then, really, the genesis of the of the writing, the, the sort of wellspring that I that I, that I draw from, was that time I spent in Bosnia, that those six years in Bosnia, and I was in a very privileged um, and interesting, um, fascinating, invigorating, heartbreaking. Um, you know, uh, depressing job, uh, best job I've ever done. Uh, and I was essentially a political officer for the, for the UN mission. And it was a peacekeeping mission. And it was um, policemen from all over the world who were coming into Bosnia to essentially oversee and, and, and reform and train uh, Bosnian police officers who had been, um, should we say, not particularly helpful to their citizens during the war. Um, and so my job was essentially tell them the lay of the land. And I was given essentially an area of the country and I was given a car and an interpreter and I was told to get out there and find out what's going on, um, speak to anyone and everyone about anything and everything. You know, spread you know spread the gospel of the United Nations where you can, but otherwise just listen. And, you know, I talked to mayors of cities, I talked to businessmen, I talked to priests, I talked to imams, I talked to women, men, children, I talked to refugees coming back, I talked to... You know, anyone who could give me a sense of what was going on. And you just draw it all together, you knit it all together. And your job was to, at the end of each week, even sometimes if the heat was on at the end of each day, you'd write a small report back to headquarters in, in Sarajevo and say, you know, I went here, I saw this, I spoke to this person, he said this, whatever. And then in the headquarters, they'd be pulling it in. There were, you know, there were like two dozen people like me across the country. And then basically it was it's sort of like an intelligence operation, very transparent, very open one. <clears throat> but we were trying to basically keep our finger on the pulse of what was going on in Bosnia so that we could be, we would give the best advice we could to our fellow UN aid workers and, um, and uh, other colleagues in the country. And then, you know, the traveling around the country was, you know, amazing. Even the area where I was was very mountainous, very forested. Some pretty awful things happened there during the war. And then I began to realize as well, you know, one of the things I really wanted to get out of the novels was this, get people away from this shorthand of the Balkans being a byword for treachery, treason, and that, you know, what can you expect from these people? They do it every 50 years, they bloodlet. And I would get really angry and I would, you know, want to push back and say, there's no more life to be prone to bloodletting in the Balkans than they are in Ireland or in Spain or in wherever. You know, blood it doesn't come out of nowhere. And I would think, well, where does it come from? And I would start sort of, you know, push and ask and think and feel and where, what happens? What happens to make you turn your hand against your neighbour? Your thirty year, your thirty years neighbour. You've barbecued with him. You've picked his kids up from school. You've, you know, looked after, you know, his whatever place when he's on holiday. You're like that, and then all of a sudden something happens, and then you, you're throwing a Molotov cocktail through his window, um, or you're standing by while he's being lynched. Or you're, you know, you're doing nothing while this family's being run out of town. Something happens to us. What happens to us in, in these moments? Um, what can we say about it? And it was kind of going back to the, one of the first things I was saying earlier in, in our interview, David, about my in, interest in history in these crux moments, these moments when things flip, go at right angles. You thought your life would be that. All of a sudden, there's this hard fork, hard left in the road. 
And sometimes you don't want to take it, right? Some, you don't want to throw a Molotov through your neighbor's window, but there's some big bearded smelly guy with Nikki 47 standing behind you and he's got that gun pointed at your head and he's saying, if you don't throw that Molotov, you know, then you're in trouble because uh, you're one of us, right? You're one of the you know, big bearded folk or you're one of the short swarthies folk or you're one of different, you're not like him, you know, you know you're not as good looking as David Temple is. <laughs> you know, you don't have an apartment as beautiful as his is. And so basically, take that Molotov and chuck it to the computer screen. So it was like, you know, what happens to people who do that, right? How... And I haven't got an answer. I, I have a lot of, um, I have something of an answer and I have something of a journey to take you on, if you like. But that's really where the two things began to fuse together, right? The sort of the job that I was doing, trying to sort of understand the country and knit the country back together, trying to do my best for that country. And then the storytelling urge, which was, my God, there's some stories to tell here. There's some you know, amazing things to say and talk about. There's universal experiences to, to sort of talk about. And then it's amazing country. Bosnia, um, you know, this sort of passionate, wild, welcoming country where I was happy for six years and my family were happy for six years. Um, and I hope you find it, you know, in the pages of the, of the at least the first two books. But then, you know, the rest of it's a bit more of a bumpier ride. You know, yeah. post-war Berlin and like, the, the trenches in 1918. So, I don't know, does that make sense, David? Does that makes make total sense. sense. Yeah, yeah. And I love the fact that you're you're blending this uh, storytelling. Or rather, uh, uh, you know, uh, report journalism with a humanitarian focus, which leads you to this expertise of storytelling. Well, the uh, Gregor Reinhardt series includes The Man from Berlin, number one. Two is The Pale House, The Divided City, and of course, From a Dark Horizon. As we get to wrap it up here, I like to do this thing just called rapid fire questions. Some of them are really super silly, easy, and others are a little more complex. And as you referred earlier, one of those is already hidden in here. So we'll start off with an easy one. Number one, number two, uh, coffee or tea? Tea. Of course. Pen and paper or keyboard? Keyboard. Music I or... I, I can't, I mean, I can't, again, going back to how our ancestors did this. I don't know how, I don't know how they kept their thoughts going with their pen. I talked to so many people who will write their first draft, and I know that uh, James Patterson does this. Uh, several people have had on the show, and I'm like, my hand can't possibly keep up with my brain, and it cramps out after an hour anyway. So, yeah. but this I can do all day long. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, music or silence when writing? Uh, music, actually. Yeah, always music. Oh, you're one of the first. And can you share a particular genre, if not a particular artist? Um, anything that really, um, it's sort of the mood of the moment, really. I mean, it depends what I'm writing. Um, but I usually like to have, um, my Dire Straits playlist. You know, there's, um, a great, he's a great storyteller, Mark Knopfler. Um, you know, um, I really love his shorthand in his writing. I mean, Romeo and Juliet, that song. I mean, it's just like, well, <laughs> I just, I, how does he, I don't know how he does it. Who else have I got? Um, Led Zeppelin. Um, you know, when, when the going gets tough, I usually like stick on a bit of a bit of zep. Um, oh yeah, I love it. You're you're a man of many talents and many uh, interests. I love that. This one's a little more complicated. It's not quite as rapid fire. You've been asked to host a roundtable discussion in front of a live audience, and you've been in, uh, you can invite three or four people, whichever pop into your head first, to interview either as research for an upcoming book or for simple pleasure, and they can be dead or alive, who would they be and why? I would love to have um, Patrick O'Brien. So he was the author of the, um, the uh, Aubrey and Maturin series, The Master and Commander. Yes. I mean, I just you know, think his, he, he, um, he, he's a great raconteur. He's a you know, very, um, very dark, very wry sense of humor, very slight sense of humor in his novels too. But he also... Um, He'd be fascinating to speak to because he he um, he wrote a lot of his books based upon um, ship's logs. He got them. I don't know where he got them from, but he he when he when he passed away, allegedly in his house, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of ship's logs, merchant ships, warships, modern ships, old ships, you name it. So he has all this sort of first-hand uh, information. So I'd love to have um, uh, him along. Who else could we have along? Stephen Fry, maybe, you know, the actor Stephen Fry. Sure. Or, or in the same genre, maybe Winston Churchill. I mean, oh. let's have him. You know, he'd probably drop a few singers into the conversation. 
<laughs> but you know, so, someone someone to sort of keep us all on our toes with our you know with sort of double entendres and a bit of slight humour. Why not? Okay, here we go. I get one more. Patrick O'Brien, Stephen Fry, maybe Winston Churchill will make it number four. Well, since we're sort of talking about the, I mean, I'm just you, you really stumped me here. I ought to have a good answer with these things, but you, you never do. These are great questions, and I would let's have let's have the unknown soldier. Oh. Let's have the unknown soldier join. That's beautiful. Okay, perfect. Last question. Your novel, From a Dark Horizon, has just been optioned for the making of a film. Huh, look at that. Who knew? Yeah. Perhaps Christopher Nolan could direct it, just saying. And you, Luke, have been hired as an executive producer. And you've also been asked for suggestions on who will play the lead. See, we come full circle. Gregor Reinhardt. Who would you dream of playing him and why? But a young Gregor Reinhardt, right? Or we're not yeah. what we're talking about. Yeah. Oof. You could pick. Um, you can pick whatever age you want. I got a couple. When when I was first writing uh, Gregor Reinhardt, in my mind, I had a, 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 a British character, an actor called Bob Peck, and most of you will know him as the guy who got, gets gobbled up by the Velociraptors in Jurassic Park. He's the big game hunter. Yes. But he was in a he was in a TV series in the nineteen eighties called Heart of Darkness, which was a later Mel Gibson movie. Um. Uh, but in Heart of Darkness, he channels the sort of the anguish of this father who's lost his daughter, and he's trying to understand what happened. So Bob Peck had the face of, of Gregor Reinhardt. Later, Viggo Mortensen, Viggo Mortensen, sort of, uh, I think about him. And then much, much later, um, because of some of the roles he played in um, films like Hostiles or Three Ten to Yuma, Christian Bale, Christian yeah. Bale could pull it off, I reckon. But um, he would have to be the, the grizzled Reinhardt from the 1940s. The fresh-faced uh, young chap, you know, I really, don't, I really don't know who would play him. That's okay. You've given me two impeccable. I mean, Viggo Mortensen, one of my all-time favorite actors. He can, he can disappear into any role uh, with reckless abandon. And uh, Christian Bale, for crying out loud, I've seen him do some work that I'm like, where did that come from, you know? Uh, we have run out of time, but Luke, thank you so much uh, for taking this time out of. Uh, what time is it in France right now? Uh, it's coming up on eight o'clock in the evening. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, my day starting, yours is ending. Yeah, sun's over the yard arm, and I think I've earned a drink. Yes, you have, and I would join you if it weren't for the fact that I have way too much yet to do. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, if you'd like to learn more, it's Luke McCallan, M-C-C-A-L-L-I-N.com. I did, Luke, I did go searching for you on both Twitter and Instagram, and I couldn't find you. I saw, I found you on a hashtag of Luke McCallan with all your books on it, but I didn't find you. Yeah, I am, unlike you, David, I am lousy at social media. I, I, I kind of run a mile. I mean, I'm on Facebook. So Luke McCallan, author, you'll find me on Facebook. I was on Twitter, but I just couldn't handle it. Um, it wasn't for me and um, Instagram yeah my kids keep saying why the hell aren't you on Instagram and I keep saying to them well why don't you do something for me on Instagram if you love your daddy that much Um, but I am lousy about this stuff I have a website which is more or less up to date but if anyone wants to keep up with what's going on the Facebook page is the place to go I do apologize for that because I do know that Facebook is so whatever (laughs) our century or something like that it's all good, uh, but Facebook's the best place. Uh, you know, you can learn everything you want to know about him on the LukeMcCallan.com. But uh, once again, Luke, this has been tremendous, and uh, I'm, I'm blessed to have had the time with you. Well, thank you, David. Thanks for reaching out, and I really appreciate it. And keep up the good work. I mean, I really, I've you know, dipped in and out and, and listened to a few of your, your, your podcasts. I think you're doing great stuff, and I've learned a lot. You know, I've got my reading list just got a lot longer from listening to some of your stuff. I, I really enjoyed the one you just did with um, Mr. Westmoreland. Um, and so I'm going to be picking up his stuff. And um, yeah, you mentioned a few authors in there, the sort of Southern crime, which I'm starting to get really interested in. Um, Ace Atkins was interviewed by um, another podcast I listened to, and I went out and bought the first Quint Colson book, showed away and read it, just finished it in the last couple of days. So yeah, I'm learning so much. I'm learning about writing. I'm learning about writers. I'm learning about books. I'm learning about how... You know, people like you pull pull this off, and it's it's um, it's great what you're doing for us. So thanks a lot. Hats off to you. Well, thank you. I'm very humbled by that, and that truly, Luke, means the world to me because that is really my whole mission. I'm taking you know a, a former uh, experience and expertise of my first career of radio and my love of books, 
And what better thing in the whole world than to sit down with guys like you, talk about books and 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 what inspires you. And then I've, I've learned all these different authors. And as I was telling Mark, I've got just stacks and stacks of books and trying to go through them every week to be able to really speak intelligently. And I, I hope I do that is, you That's know, also good. well, it's, it's quite a job, but it's guys like you that make this all very, very easy. And those are very nice words. All right. Well, it's time for you to go get your cocktail and my third or fourth cup of coffee. And then until we speak again, thank you for doing all you can for the Thriller Zone by just spreading the love as you just did. Count on me. Count on me, David. And if I can say it's never too late to put a splash of whiskey in that coffee. <laughs> you all know, right. maybe, maybe that would <coughs> help <coughs> this little cough of mine. <coughs> yeah. It's me- yeah, medicinal, medicinal only, right? Purely medicinal. Purely medicinal. Yeah. All right. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks, Luke. I think we both learned a lot. Okay, now for next week's show. Yet another completely unique guest. And not only that, but we're keeping our show international. As I welcome Janash Neumann, a former Russian NSB counterintelligence officer who was appointed by the Russian government to supervise multi-billion dollar international money laundering operations for the Russian state and state officials. What? Yes, Janash and his wife Victoria defected from Russia and was brought to the U.S. by the CIA, where they were consultants for a variety of U.S. agencies helping with investigations related to Russian intelligence operations, money laundering, and the fight against Eurasian organized crime groups in U.S. and Europe. I know, right? Their Red Atlantis graphic novel is what they call their shadow parallel reality and is an animated thriller that's inspired by true events with references to real characters and recent geopolitical situations. It's a lot of words to say that this show with Janosh on Friday the 17th will be unlike any interview I've ever created and sure to get plenty of attention. So if you're a fan of graphic novels as I am, you're in for a real treat. Okay, that's it for now. I'm your host, David Temple, and I've got some reading to do. So I'll see you next time on The Thriller Zone. 